Well, good morning. I welcome those of you online. Welcome to our Sunday morning New Hope Chapel worship service. You know, on Sunday, January the 1st, the schedule had me preaching, and I ventured to give a New Year's Day message. I wanted to deliver a message from God that was from him that just kind of led the path open for New York Chapel to have a wonderful and successful new year. And as some of you know, because I share with you, a three-part message came to me. And that included a spirit of gratitude, a spirit of unity, and what God wants from us. But there was so much material that I had to deliver the message in three sermons. <clears throat> the third sermon and the last part of that is this morning. And so the title of my sermon this morning is What in the World? My text is 1 Corinthians 10.31. Of course, as always, walk with me through Psalm 19.14. And so, dear Lord, this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my Lord, my strength, and my Redeemer. Amen? You know, there's only six questions that have ever been asked by anyone anywhere in any language in the history of this planet. No one has ever come up with the seventh question. And when you ask these six questions about any topic, you have asked every question that there is to ask about that topic. And the questions are all very well known to everybody. These are who, what, where, when, how, and why. Now, those questions may appear to be equal in importance, but they're not. There is a question in this group that is the top, the superior, the truly most important question of all. You go back to that philosopher Aristotle who actually helped us figure out the answer. And so a student of his says, what is the most important question? Because if you figure out what to do, everything else will fall into place. Aristotle looked at him and said, why is what the most important question? And someone else then says with with confidence, who is the most important question? If you get the right person doing the right thing with the right people at the right time, everything else falls into place. Aristotle simply replied, why is the who the most important question? It didn't take his students long to figure out that he was suggesting that why is the most important question. You know, without exception, behind every other question eventually comes the question, why? And as you know, little children figure that out from day one. They always ask, that's the number one question that they ask. Why? 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 Stop it. Why? Parents are laughing. (laughs) You know, there's an old saying that says, he who knows how will always have a job. He who knows why will always be the boss. And it really should come as no surprise that when a survey in USA Today asked the question, if you could ask one question of God and get a direct and clear answer, what would that question be? The number one question by a two-to-one margin 
that people said they would ask God is this. Why am I here on earth? You know, it's been said that there are two great moments in a person's life. The first is when you were born. And the second is when you discover why you were born. You know, it's been a long time, but in my freshman year of college, I took a course in philosophy. At the beginning of the class, the philosophy instructor got up and he said, the one question everyone in this room needs to wrestle with and answer before you die is this one. Why are you here instead of not being here? And so this morning we are calling my sermon, What in the World? Meaning, what in the world does God want from us? Let me tell you why God must be brought into the picture. If you are here as a result of an evolutionary chance, then truly the answer to that question is impossible because you can only guess as to why you're here. You can have an opinion as to why you're here, but you will never really know why you are here. If instead we are here by divine appointment, then you were created for a divine purpose that only he can tell you the answer to that question. Today we're going to find the ultimate and the only true answer to that question, which, by the way, is the same for everyone, because everyone who has ever been born or will ever be born has been born for one primary purpose. And let's begin with the reasons and the things that God wants from us. He says first, believe me. You know, without faith, you cannot please God. And then, too, he says, love me. We know the greatest commandment of all the commandments is to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then third, he says, obey me. Because Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. But now we still have to go back to those questions why should we believe God? Why should we leave, uh, love God? And why should we obey God? And the answer to these questions is found in the fourth and last thing God wants from us, which is why everyone who has ever been here will be here, is here. And God simply says, glorify me. Do you know why Jesus came to planet Earth? We've all heard, we sang this morning, that he came to die on the cross to save us from our sins so that we would have a relationship with God, and that's all true. But why did he do that? He says to Father God in John 17, verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Jesus did not primarily first come for us. He came primarily first for his heavenly Father. He came to bring salvation to us, but why did he do that? Because ultimately he wanted to bring glory to the Father. And the main reason God sent Jesus is the same reason God put us here on earth, to glorify him. You know, a man by the name of Paul, who gave his life to glorifying God, made a statement to a church in a place called Corinth. And that pretty much says it all about the glory of God in the life that we must live. So our text, 
1 Corinthians 10.31. But let me say first, because I believe that Paul, at about this point in his writing, was about to start this long list of all the things we needed to do to glorify God. But I believe he realized that it would just be an impossibly long list. So he decided to put everything in one basket. And here's what he says in our text. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Now let those words sink in. Do you understand the impact that statement should have on your life? If that verse is true, that means your life is not about you. Your life is about God. That means not only the why you are here is the glory of God, but the why you should ever do anything that you do should be for the glory of God. In other words, at the end of the day, nothing is about you. It's all about God. And whether you're eating or drinking, whether you're working or playing, talking or listening, everything behind everything you do and everything you are should be the glory of God. Now the question is, how do we do that? How do we glorify God? How do we make sure that we give the glory to God that God desires? Let me suggest three ways. First, in your outline, consider that we should recognize God's glory. There is something that we need to understand about the glory of God that is foundational to even beginning to understand anything about God himself. And that is that there is a difference between us and God in that we really cannot give God glory because God already has glory. God is glorious We can give other people glory. Glory is something either people give you or somehow you earn for yourself. Let me give you some examples. Take a king. If you walk into a palace and you see a king sitting up there in a throne with a robe and a crown, then you bow and you give him glory. But if that same king were to take off the robe and the crown and leave the throne put on the clothes of a beggar, go walking in the street and sit next to a beggar, you would have a difficult time determining who is the beggar and who is the king. See, the king does not have any glory in and of himself. The only glory the king has is when he puts on the robe and the crown and sits on that throne. Or a man or a woman puts on a judicial robe and sits behind a judicial desk in a courtroom. They have the glory of a judge. But when they take off their robe, get into their car, and drive down the street, they're just another person. Lastly, when you have a police officer in a uniform, wearing a badge, he has the glory of a police officer, but take off the uniform, take off the badge, and he's just another person. But listen, God never takes off his uniform. God never takes off his crown, and God never leaves the throne. He's not God because of the throne or the robe or the crown. He has a throne, a robe, and a crown because he is God. His glory and him are inseparable. 
Glory is an essential is as essential to God as light is to the sun, as blue is to the sky, as wet is to water. You cannot make water wet. It just is wet. You can't paint the sky blue. It just is blue. You don't give light to the sun. It just is light. So in that sense, you cannot give God glory because God is glory. He's called over and over the God of glory. Now imagine, if the world had never been created, Imagine if we were not here. Imagine if no angels had ever been created. God would still be a God of glory. Hence, therefore, we cannot add anything to his glory and we cannot subtract anything from his glory. He is forever glory and glorious. You know, a king by the name of David who knew what it was to have the glory of a king, he said this in Psalm 29 too. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. If God already has glory, how do you give him glory? We give him glory by recognizing his glory, and we recognize his glory by worshiping him, by praising him, by extolling him, by lifting him up, by honoring him, by singing to him, and by testifying of him. Which again should remind us all of something, and that is that our worship is not about us. It's about him. It really should matter to us. It, 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 what really should matter to us is, is not how we worship, but why we worship. You know, there are some churches, there is an issue of hymns versus non-hymns. The issue about music is not the issue. The issue is, do you like the music? No. But does he like the music? It's not about you. It's about him. And the first way we glorify God is by recognizing his glory. And second, in your outline, consider that we should reflect God's glory. Listen to this entire verse again. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That raises a question. How do you eat and drink for the glory of God? The point is not just eating something for God's glory or drinking something for God's glory, but even a simple mundane activity like eating some food or drinking some liquid needs to be done with the glory of God in mind. In other words, the why behind everything we should we do should be to glorify God. You know, the average person takes about 30,000 breaths every day. And every breath should be taken with the glory of God in mind. How different would your life be on a daily basis if you were always asking these two questions before you did anything, before you went anywhere, before you ate anything, before you drank anything? And these two are, first, does this glorify God? 
And then the second might be asked, how can I make this glorify God? You know, earlier in the same letter, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I would add, with your body. What you do with and to your body is telling. Why should we always give God glory? We were made by him. We were made for him. Our flashlight should always be on, and we are to shine our light not only for him, but we are to shine our light on him. And the only motive we should ever have to do anything is to bring glory to God. You know, we should never do anything just for ourselves. We don't eat for ourselves. We don't drink for ourselves. We don't live for ourselves. We should all do it for the glory of God, and that's what's in our mind. See, God doesn't exist to make a big deal of us. We exist to make a big deal of him. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about him. You know, the perfect model for us is the moon. But let me share a short little story before I go on. That is about a five-year-old kindergarten student whose teacher had just completed a lesson on the solar system. She was teaching that kindergarten class about the sun and the planets, the moons and the asteroids, whatever. And then she turns to this five-year-old and she says to him, what was your favorite part? What do you think is the most important part of the solar system? And he says, the moon. And she said, why the moon? Because it gives us light. To which the teacher responded, what about the sun? It is so much bigger and gives a lot more light. The five-year-old said, yes, but the moon gives us light at night when we need it. And the sun gives us light during the day when we don't. (laughs) Now, what does the moon actually do? The moon doesn't do anything. It doesn't generate any light. It doesn't shine on its own. And apart from the sun, the moon is nothing more than a dark, black, pot-marked rock. But when the moon is perfectly positioned to the sun, the moon glows and the moon shines and the moon does what the moon was created to do, and that is to reflect the light of the sun. And we're put here on earth to reflect the light of God's sun. Not S-U-N, S-O-N. The way we live, the words we say, the things that we do, the places we go, and the people that we are is always to reflect God's glory. We should always live in such a way that people see God in us. God sees through us and he sees others through us. We must never deflect God's glory. We must always reflect it. And then lastly, third in your outline, we should receive God's glory. Now this may sound like a strange thing to say, but if we are supposed to give God the glory, how is it possible to receive his glory? 
I know it's possible because Jesus said something in the same chapter we quoted before, that is John 17. Now verse 22, he said, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. He wasn't talking just about the then disciples alone. He was talking to everyone who would ever be a disciple. And how do you get, how do you become a disciple? By believing in him, by loving him, and by obeying him. Then you receive God's glory when you receive God's son. You cannot give God glory until you give your life to the son. See, Paul wrote something else to another church in another place called Philippi. And if you're familiar with Scripture, you know that this is one of the most familiar passages in all of the Bible. Listen to what he said in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Nothing gives God more glory than when you give your life to to Jesus. When you give your life to the Son of God, the Son of God gives you glory. And that is why you were put on this planet. You were put here to glorify God. And the first step to glorifying God is giving your life to the Son of God that he sent for you. I shared something I thought was interesting in a previous sermon about duct tape. And to repeat, you know that duct tape can just about repair anything. There are probably very few households in this country that don't have duct tape. But there was a recent study that duct tape does not really succeed at the purpose for which it was created. Scientists at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in California found that duct tape is a terrible product for sealing ductwork. They found that duct tape almost always failed to do what it was supposed to do. In fact, approximately 30% of the heat or the cool air generated in an average home is lost in the attic or lost in the walls because of poorly sealed ducts with duct tape. You can, you, you, you can tape up a bicycle seat. You can seal off a leaky radiator hose, fix a broken window. You can even keep an alligator's mouth shut with duct tape, but you cannot depend on duct tape to seal ducts. So no matter what else you do in this life or how well you do it, if you do not give your life to Jesus Christ, you will never fulfill the purpose for which you were created. Johann Sebastian Bach is to classical music what Shakespeare is to English literature and what Sir Isaac Newton is to physics. He wrote 256 cantatas, and one you hear at almost every wedding. But what made him so great, at least in my eyes, is not what he wrote, but why he wrote it. His music were actually prayers before they were songs. And I mean that literally. Before Bach would score a sheet of music, at the top of the sheet of music he would scrawl, J, J. 
Jesus, Yuva. Scroll at the very top. It was a prayer that simply says, Jesus, help me. And whenever he completed any composition, he would write three letters in the margin of the music, S-D-G. Those three letters represent the Latin phrase, soli deo gloria, which literally means to the glory of God alone. You know, the word for glory literally means to hold an opinion of someone. If you have no desire to glorify the God who made you, you not only believe in the wrong God, you are living the wrong life. You know, there's only two groups of beings in this universe who do not voluntarily glorify God. Rebellious people and rebellious angels. And that is why in eternity they will be separated from the God of glory because they had no desire to give him glory here and now. They will have no desire to give him glory later. And in closing, consider that a counterfeit bill can do a lot of good. It can put gas in your car. It can put food on your table. It can put a roof over your head. But one day, it will either get to the bank or to a treasury agent who will recognize it for what it is and reject it. So there's a lot of things on this earth you can be successful with. You can have fame, you can have fortune, you can do a lot of things that will get you a lot of glory from other people. But at the end of the day, the only life that matters is the one that glorifies God by accepting the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, service is over. I feel we have now completed the thought for the new year. Begin with gratitude, in unity, and now remember our text, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And this year, let us go and live with gratitude, in unity, and with glory for God. Amen?